We're going to go into the book of Ephesians without much delay right now. If you would turn to chapter 1 of the, the, the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, verse 1 and 2. We're going to get started there tonight. And let's see how far we can get. And hopefully we'll have a little time at the end tonight for some Q&A. So if you have a question while I'm teaching and there's something you don't understand or don't get, write it down and then uh, we'll pass the microphone around at the end of the night and you, can, uh, and you can ask me a question and hopefully I'll know the answer. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. How many of you have seen... Uh, the movie with Jack Nicholson and Helen Hunt, uh, As Good As It Gets. Did you see that movie? Um, it's just an awesome. If you haven't had a chance to see it, it's really cool. And um, one of the scenes in it, see, uh, he plays um, Melvin. His, his, his character is called Melvin, and her character is called Carol. And Melvin is uh, obsessive-compulsive, and he rarely leaves his apartment. He's a songwriter for a living. And she's a waitress at a local restaurant. And the, the local restaurant is about the only place that he'll ever go, venture out of his apartment. He's just paranoid of everything. So anyway, he meets her at the restaurant. And long story short, asks her out on a date. And, and uh, she agrees. She accepts the date. And he takes her to a real nice restaurant. And just, you know, they're both nervous. And Melvin is, he absolutely has no idea how to carry on a social conversation whatsoever. And that's what's so funny about him. He's just very blunt. So he'll tell you right what's on his mind right at the moment. He sits down there. He's across the table from Carol. And he looks at her and he says, Carol, he said, you make me want to be a better man. You make me want to be a better man. And I want you to remember that because that's what we're going to be talking about tonight. The book of Ephesians is a book about spiritual transformation. If you were to give a theme to the whole epistle of Paul to the Ephesians, that's it. He's talking to them about spiritual transformation, about us becoming better men and better women. And think about that conversation with Melvin and Carol as we go through this tonight. I love the book of Ephesians. I love the language of it and uh, the Apostle Paul's amazing description of the wonderful treasures that belong to the church and the supernatural means that God offers us by which we undergo this amazing spiritual transformation. It is so rich in language that will lift you up and bless you because it's Paul telling you who you are and it's Paul telling you the, the, the amazing power of God that's available to you that will transform your life and do something that you could never normally do on your own. Before we get into chapter 1, I'd like to do a little background on the letter just to kind of give you a little better idea of the situation in Asia in those days and how this letter came about. Uh, there are two accounts of Paul visiting the city of Ephesus in the book of Acts. And as you can see from the map that we've got posted up there, Ephesus was located along the Aegean Sea, uh, just across the, uh, the sea from uh, Greece. And um, it's only just, it, it was a big, thriving metropolis, Ephesus was in those days. Today, it's just marked by a tiny little village. It's nothing compared to what it was. It's Turkey today. Back then, it was Asia. Today, it's Turkey. And it's just a small little Turkish village 
uh, that remains where Ephesus used to be. It was not only a great port city, it was also a real important link between east and west. And a lot of merchandise and a lot of trade went through Ephesus in those days. It was also the host city for the worship of the goddess Artemis. And it, she was one of the great pagan goddesses in those days. Uh, E.M. Blakelock calls the men of the, the cult of Artemis the custodians and champions of this famous goddess. And so there it was. And of course, Artemis wasn't the only thing worshipped in those days because it was a part of the Roman Empire. And so there was Caesar worship there as well. So you had the cult of Artemis and the cult of Caesar. And then all of a sudden, uh, the cult of Christianity is introduced into the mix in Ephesus, and that's when problems started in Ephesus. And the Christians, who were under the teaching of Paul, began to have huge influence in this city. There was a revival that just started breaking out in the city, and the church was growing and growing, and these followers who were uh, of Artemis were coming over into Christianity and forsaking their pagan ways and following Jesus, and just by the temple, near the temple of Artemis, there were scores and scores of little shops and silversmiths, and they would sell these likenesses of the temple to people who came there to worship her, and then they would take these likenesses back home with them and put them up as a little shrine in their home and use that as their worship. There was a bustling trade, a silversmith trade there, right outside the gates of the temple to Artemis. And um, there was even a silversmith's guild, or kind of like a union, and it was headed up by a man named Demetrius. So the, here is the problem. More and more people are coming to Christ. Fewer and fewer people are purchasing these items from the silversmith, and that was a problem. And so Demetrius calls his fellow craftsmen together and all of the workmen of all the other trades, it says, and here's what it says, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. You see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and practically the whole province of Asia. And he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. Harumph, how dare he? There is danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited, and the goddess herself, who is worshipped throughout the province of Asia and the world, will be robbed of her divine majesty, as if she had any divine majesty. So they were taking it as fact. She was their god, and she was being robbed of her majesty. Really what was going on is their pockets were being emptied. Uh, it wasn't as big a problem for Artemis as it was for these guys' pocketbooks. And there was a ruckus about ready to happen. And so Demetrius got everybody worked up, the artisans and shop owners. A riot broke out, and people rushed down the main street that you see in this present-day photograph of Ephesus. Uh, and where the red line is, that was the main street that led from the Colosseum down to the port and the docks. And um, so these people are rushing down there toward the Colosseum. And Paul was in town, but the Christians in the church, they kept Paul hidden. They didn't want him going down to the Colosseum to try to calm the crowd down because there was murder in their hearts. And they didn't want bloodshed. There, there might have been bloodshed anyway had, had these, this political figure, this governor, Roman governor, not stepped in. Well, they call him the city clerk here, but he was the Roman governor. And he stepped in and calmed the crowd down. And so the shopkeepers went back to their businesses and the silversmiths went back to their shops. And Paul and his companions left town quickly 
for Macedonia after having spent already spent two years in Ephesus. So what we can see from this is that the birth of the church in Ephesus was not a small event. It was huge. It was a huge city. There was a huge revival. The church was growing by leaps and bounds. And as a result, people's pockets were being emptied because, of course, the people were coming over to Christ and realizing we don't need to worship Artemis. We don't need to buy these shrines for our homes. We can worship God in our home without anything. It was awesome for them. So the gospel was taking a firm hold in Ephesus right away, and the church continued to grow month by month. Now, three or four years later, Paul came back through that area on his way to Palestine, where he would ultimately be arrested and then sent to Rome to be tried before Caesar. And because he was in a hurry to return to Jerusalem, he did not go to Ephesus, but he called for the Ephesian elders to join him in Miletus, which was about 30 miles south of Ephesus. And uh, it was a bittersweet reunion because they're together, they're overjoyed to see their father in the faith. They want to see, to get together with him and hear what he's got to say. But at the same time, he gives them the bad news uh, that he's never going to see them again. That this is going to be the last time that they lay eyes on each other. And so these are some of his parting words for these Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep, uh, uh, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, referring to false teachers. And so be on your guard. And I commit you to God. I commit you to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And you know what? This letter of Paul to the Ephesians, if you read it and meditate on it, it will do just that. It will build you up. And so his message to these Ephesian elders continued on. Later on, verse 3, Praise be to the God, of the Father of our, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. So the overall theme, as I said, in Ephesians is transformation and we'll be pointing back to that study as we go through this tonight the first section uh, as we open here in verse 3 is what we would call a doxology maybe you've heard that word before a doxology is nothing more than a hymn of praise to God and that's what this is praise be to the Father God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ I think it's interesting that we would begin a study in Ephesians on spiritual transformation by, by talking about God and what God has done for us through Christ instead of talking about we're, what we're supposed to do for him in order to transform ourselves. That's not what Paul talks about here. That's not what he opens with. Instead, he begins to lift up the name of Christ and focus in on the things that Christ has done for the Ephesian people so that they might bring glory to God and this transformation can happen. And that is how it goes with our relationship to God. There can be no spiritual transformation in me, in a person, until God does something in that person first. 
I mean, we can't just think this stuff up and just think that, okay, I want to be more spiritual now, and so I'm going to try this and this and this and this, and step one, step two, step three. That's never the way Paul painted that picture, ever. In other words, my transformation begins not with my decision to become spiritual and, uh, and become a better person. It depends on God's decision to call me to himself and then begin his work of blessing in me and transforming me on the inside. That's how it starts. It's God's idea. And he calls you to himself. It's awesome. Now, the view of God in the ancient world in those days was really not a whole lot different than it is today in our culture. He was thought of as this, as this really short-tempered guy you know, kind of real powerful and angry all the time and absolutely disinclined to love anybody. But since, hey, he holds the universe together and he makes the rain fall and he makes the sunshine and the crops grow and since he holds all the purse strings and since he governs the universe and since we men are very small and he, God, is very big, it seems like a good idea, and it was for these people. They, they felt it was a good idea to do everything in their power to keep this unknown God happy. Keep him happy. Perhaps if they could appease him enough, whoever or wherever he was, he would leave them alone. Imagine that. What a great relationship with God. If we do this and this and this, maybe he'll leave us alone. <laughs> I hope that's not your, your relationship to God. And then he wouldn't make anything bad happen to us. That was basically what, you know, that was what the relationship was like with them. And so these people built these temples and these statues, and they held these extravagant yearly festivals, and offerings were offered, and indulgences were paid, and sacrifices were sacrificed. And of course, these silversmiths and woodcutters and stonemasons and stone craftsmen figured out really quick that you could make a living off of the fear of these people. And they did that. And these worshipers in, in Ephesus came to them and bought all this stuff. And this went on for centuries, guys, centuries. And that is all until this wiry little man named Paul wandered into town from Antioch and began to tell them about Jesus Christ, the Savior of the universe. And he told them that this Savior of the world had made an appearance in Jerusalem that he had died and then risen from the dead. And this one author I read put it like this. This new faith that Paul introduced. <laughs> it's my son. Sorry about that. Dad, are you doing anything? Are you busy? <sighs> Sorry about that, gang. This new faith... This new faith cut across established forms and patterns of pagan life in the first century. Imagine that. This new faith cut across forms and patterns of religious life. Does that sound familiar to us in northern Wisconsin? That the faith of Jesus Christ would cut across a particular religious pattern? He couldn't get me, so he called us my wife. He's relentless. <laughs> and so he started preaching at the synagogue in Ephesus. 
But he became so controversial. He was in the synagogue preaching to the Jews. He became so controversial with the Jews, they forced him out. He had to move down the street to a school that was owned by a Greek man named Tyrannus. And so the Jews were happy. We got rid of him preaching this controversial stuff in our synagogue. No more of that. And then he goes to the, to the to this Greek school and he's preaching in the Greek school. And then all of these Greeks are starting to come to know Jesus Christ and they're, they're not worshiping Artemis anymore and they're not buying the silver anymore. And so then they became irate as well. What is it? Maybe you better go call him. The house is burning down. Dad, come quick. Sorry, gang. So, where was I? Ah, so the Jews were happy. They got rid of him. The Greeks became irate. Uh, he's got this new sect that he's pushing in the Greek uh, school. No, we can't have that. He's drawing all this business away. So there's a riot, as we described earlier, and the people in the new Ephesian church there was almost bloodshed as a result of, of, of this little guy, this little Jewish guy coming in here and talking about Jesus. What was going on? So this, ladies and gentlemen, was how Christianity started in this amazing city of Ephesus. But one thing we learn right away from all of this, the God who Paul introduced to this city must have really had some power to change these people because within the first two years of the existence of this church in Ephesus, they were making a mark, believe me. They were different. They were moral. They were gaining the respect of the people. Until now, these ancient men had feared a God that they didn't even know, a God who was angry and demanding and capricious all the time. They could never guess what he was going to do and what he was going to think. And now these Christians were daring to say that the true God wasn't like that at all. Good news. Our God is different. He loves you. He loves people. He desires only our good. And he can be approached by faith. Oh, this really upset the apple cart. And it destroyed almost overnight centuries of preconceived ideas that these people had about God. And it also started eating away at the financial foundations of these cults. And the men and women who made their living for years off of this angry God found that it wasn't going to be that easy anymore, at least in Ephesus. And so this new God from the east did not require statues or shrines or yearly pilgrimages or festivals. All he wanted was faith and obedience. Let's take a look at these incredible spiritual blessings that are contained in this brief doxology of Paul's as he reminds the Ephesians all of the blessings that they enjoy because they believe in Christ. First of all, we discover that a believer in Christ is blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And the phrase heavenly realms, notice this phrase, take note of it, it is used frequently in the whole book of Ephesians. 
uh, in verse uh, 20 of this same chapter, Christ is said to be seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly realms. Chapter 2, verse 6, God has raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We learn in chapter 310 that God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realms. And, uh, and then finally in chapter 6, verse 12, we discover that the battle of our faith and for our faith that believers fight here on this earth actually is a battle that has to be fought in heaven because it says our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil. Where? In the heavenly realm. So Paul, as I said, was not wasting any time in reminding the Ephesian believers that Christ was seated in heaven and that they were also seated there with Christ and that all of heaven and all of the evil powers on earth and in heaven knew that fact. They knew that these believers in Jesus were actually seated in a spiritual place with Christ in heaven and that the life that we live now as believers will consist of some warfare because of that not carried out here on earth but in that very place where we are seated with Christ the heavenly realms that's why you have that phrase repeated over and over again I know it seems abstract I know it sounds a little abstract how I mean we're here on earth and we're in a physical body how can we be seated in realm, heavenly realm well, well we'll get to that but it, it's true that we are in both places at the same time as believers in Jesus Christ you might think after reading through this doxology a few times that Paul was bringing the reminder of heavenly blessings from heavenly realms to the Ephesians because he was trying to reorient them to a new life and if you thought that you would be right he was trying through this teaching to help these guys understand you're really new people and you really have a new dwelling place. I know you're here in your earthly body. I know you have your physical senses, but I want you to know something. Since you've believed in Christ, something very dramatic has changed inside of you and something has happened to you and you have come alive spiritually and now, now you dwell in a heavenly place at the same time, simultaneously. Ooh, that's kind of amazing, isn't it? The transformed life in a believer living on earth actually begins in heaven through divine intention. In other words, every time you have a thought, believer, about eternal things or about sin and death, about God and his existence, about whether to live for him or not. Every time you pray to worship him, pray to him or worship him or find yourself trusting him during a time of testing, you know that that comes from heaven. Whether it's a, a thought or an intention or a belief or a prayer or an action on your part, as a believer in Christ, that's coming from the heavenly realms. And God thought about it first. And then imparted it to you because you're connected now isn't that cool think of it this way uh, for decades for decades football teams in America have taken their instructions from coaches in a booth that's way up above 
the football field, right? You're all familiar with the coat, you know, because you see them on TV every once in a while. Though the camera will pan over, and there's the coat, the offensive coordinator sitting up in the booth. And the with the advent of all of the modern sound and film technology and photographic technology, the coaches in the sound booth above the field can communicate to the coaches on the sideline and then those guys then can communicate to the players on the field and so our quarterbacks for our football teams now have headphones in their helmets and they can hear the plays getting called in as they're getting called down to the sidelines from the booth up way above the field and why is that a good strategy well Obviously, because quite often the guys on the sideline can't see the formations and the strategies of the opponent as good as the guys that are up above the field. They've got better vision. They have perspective. The coaches in the booth above uh, can see the whole game. They can see offense, defense all at the same time, and they are capable of guiding the team because they have an overhead perspective. And so it is in the church. We find that we often need better perspective don't we we need a plan from the coach who resides far above the playing field and who sees everything much better much clearer and he sees it all at once he sees offense and defense all at the same time he understands the nature of the battle that we are in better he has a better strategy because he has better perspective and that's why he has invited us to seek, be seated with him in heavenly places so that he can impart the strategy to us as the battle continues for our faith. It's really important that we understand that concept so that, first of all, we understand we're not alone in this thing, and second of all, that we understand that he's the guy with the wisdom, not us. He knows how to guide our lives. He knows how to help us make the decisions because he's got the whole thing in front of him. He sees what's happening. Before it happens, he sees it. And that's why he wants to guide us. To further emphasize what's going on in us, Paul reinforces verse 3 with the, with the next. For he, God, chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, if you want to get in on the original intent and purpose uh, for why God made man and what his plan for man has always been, here it is. He chose us so that we could be holy and blameless in his sight. He wanted fellowship. He wanted to have people in heaven with him forever that were made in his image. Period. The problem is that so many of us end up leading these dual lives. We, 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 we call ourselves believers, but, but we're not holy. And we're not blameless. We're not behaving and looking like what we should as children of God. We lead two lives. We're like chameleons. We change with our surroundings. And when we're in church, well, we act like everybody else does at church. And then when we're outside the church, we're able to kind of blend back into our surroundings out there. And chameleon Christianity, though, is not real Christianity. And it is not the plan of God for you and for me. From the beginning... From the beginning, God had a plan. Paul says that even before creation, a particular spiritual family was chosen for the purpose of being holy and blameless in the sight of God. So not only are things going on in heavenly realms that concern us, 
but it looks like the heavenly plan of God was intended all along to be implemented in man dwelling on earth. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing, apparently, so that we can be blameless here on earth. And notice this phrase, in his sight. It's important. It's a reminder to us, in his sight, that a person can be a fake. You can even try to fake holiness on earth. Even people in the church may be watching you and looking on. And you can still fake it in front of them. But that's why Paul added this phrase in his sight, because you can't fake holiness before God. He knows the real deal, doesn't he? The blessing of holiness, real holiness, is always discerned by the eye of God. And believe me, he knows the difference. He knows the difference. Verse 5 adds on to verse 4. We were chosen before creation so we could be made holy. And here we are predestined through God's love to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. The theme of adoption runs throughout the New Testament, especially in Paul's letters. And notice it over in Romans chapter 8. You see this word adoption again. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So you're going to see the theme of adoption in the epistles of Paul. A further reason for this doxology, this hymn of praise to God, is found next. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Grace means favor. To be in someone's graces means to be favored by that person. And grace in the Bible takes it even a step further. Grace means unmerited favor given to us by God. In other words, we receive God's favor through Christ even though we don't deserve it. We've done everything to not deserve, as a matter of fact. And he gives it to us anyway. The favor we have with God, beloved, is a miracle. It's just a flat-out miracle. And if you ever take time to think about your life and you think about the things that maybe you've done to offend God, and then you think about the fact that He's forgiven you <laughs> and that He's had grace on you, I don't. I, when I think about that in my life and what I did to Him, it's a miracle. Amen? It's a miracle. And that's the grace that God gives us this day, available to us. Grace is unmerited favor. God himself, in the person of Jesus Christ, stepped between us and the judgment that we deserve, and God himself intervened on our behalf. That intervention, that glorious grace given freely to us calls for praise from the human heart. And a heart that is being transformed by grace and understands what's going on, that heart will have no problem singing the praises of God like we were doing earlier tonight. When you understand the riches of that grace, man, and the fact that you've been forgiven freely by God, not, nothing earned, it will bring forth praise in your heart because you understand where you came from 
and you understand how much you've been forgiven. It's an amazing thing. God's grace is given through the intervention of Jesus Christ, the one he loves. Verse 7 and 8 say, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Okay, so before I close tonight, we're going to have a little time for questions. Let's take a little brief inventory of what we have seen so far in these few verses. We are blessed with all spiritual blessings in Christ. We have been chosen by God before creation to be holy and blameless. We have been predestined by God to be his adopted sons and daughters. We have, we have become recipients of his freely given favor, his grace. And now redemption and forgiveness of our sins along with grace. Not given out in small portions, but lavished on us. An unlimited flow from the heart of God to us. Isn't that amazing? Just a few verses in Ephesians and you get all of that cool stuff just because you belong to Jesus and believe in him. 